Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to K2. I'm Mike. I'm one of the teachers here and director of arts, and I'm uh, really excited about today because we're actually we're taught we're celebrating uh, Orphan Sunday now. Having said that, I know some of you just went, you know, just like sank in your seat a little bit, and you're like, oh, Orphan Sunday. You started having thought, you know, maybe you lit up like bubble shooter on your phone or something like that. But, um, and you started having thoughts like, Orphan Sunday is not for me. And I want to tell you, yes, it is. You had maybe having thoughts like, uh, well, I mean, you know, don't, don't we talk about this? It feels like we just talked about this last November. Yes. And next November, too, by the way. Or you're thinking things like, you know what? Um, I know what's going to happen. He's going to share stats and stories that are going to make me feel sad and guilty. Yes, I am. And you're thinking, you know, he's going to try and get me to be a foster parent or adopt. Correct. So now we know the outline for the day. Uh, just joking. Actually, I'm not going to try and get you to do anything. You know, any Sunday or actually any day of your life, uh, what should be happening is every person just asking God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do? And I would ask the same for today. I am going to share stats and stories with you, but what I want you to do, I don't want to make you do anything. I want you to seek God and see what he might be saying to you and follow that leading. And let me just, you know, pump the brakes for a quick mini here because it's easy for me to talk about this. Um, my wife and I, before we ever met, we knew with all of our hearts uh, we were supposed to adopt. So, and we did, and we fostered. So this is something near and dear to my heart. So it's easy to talk about, but I know for many of you, you're like, you know what, though? I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm supposed to be a foster parent or adopt. And uh, that, that's actually probably true for some of you. And um, so I, I don't, I don't want to force you to do it, but here's... By the way, if you do, some of our stories about foster care and adoption are great, you know, so if you want to take us out to coffee or dinner, we'd love to uh, tell you about it while you pay for our food. Um, anyway, uh, we, we want to, anyway, if, if you feel like you're not the person, if you're like, hey, listen, I don't think I'm supposed to foster care or adopt, okay, just don't check out. Because I believe that God has something he wants to ask of you this morning, okay? And so, obviously, when I say we're celebrating Orphan Sunday, we are definitely not celebrating the fact that there are so many orphans worldwide. I just looked at UNICEF statistics. They say 153 million orphans worldwide, and with an additional 5,700 children becoming orphans every day. That's staggering. That's staggering. But when you boil it down to just nationally or even within the state, 3,000 children are in the Utah foster care system with 200 of them that are available for adoption today. That means that the parental rights of these children have been severed. They will not be reunified with their family. They're just waiting for someone to say, well, you can be part of ours. And the stats, by the way, for foster parents and caseworkers aren't so great either. Most, 50% uh, of foster parents after one year burn out and, and stop being a foster parent. After 18 months, the average is that caseworkers move on to do something else. 18 months. And when you look at, like, the statistics of someone who ages out of foster care, it gets even, you know, maybe even more daunting when you understand that only half of the kids that age out of foster care are employed at the age of 24. 40% become homeless. Only half will graduate from high school. Less than 3% earn a college degree compared to the national average of 36% for people between the ages of 25 and 34. 
42% will be convicted of a crime, and a quarter of all kids aging out of foster care suffer PTSD, which is twice the rate of combat veterans. This is a significant problem. It's an epidemic. So we're not celebrating that. But what we are celebrating is that 80 nations, as of 2017, 80 nations across the world have joined in celebrating Orphan Sunday to make a change. And 2,000 churches in America, as of last year, were registered to celebrate this day to make a change. And uh, it's interesting, Orphan Sunday, it actually began when this guy, Gary Schneider, visited Africa. He was in Zambia, and he witnessed a service that was going on where the pastor of the Zambian church in this uh, AIDS-riddled, poverty-stricken uh, community, he made this passionate plea for his people to step into the gap and help meet the needs of these orphans that were in his community. And out of their own poverty, this congregation came forward in the offering, gave food, finances, some took their shoes off and gave shoes to provide for those orphans. Gary Snyder was so moved, he realized he had to do something on a national level, hence Orphan Sunday. So that's what we're celebrating. And just so you know, the idea of adoption isn't just a solution that man has come up with. Hey, here's a, here's a good thing. Here's what we should do. Actually, the idea of adoption is rooted in Scripture, and it's a deep theological truth. And I want to look at that just for a minute. So the first thing, let's just look at James 1.21. What does God think about the orphan? Well, let's look at this. And it says in James 1.27, Religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted. Well, that word religion is also translated worship. So you can think of it that way. You want to know what God, what kind of worship God looks for? He looks for the kind of worship that cares for Orphans, And I, maybe one way to think of it, this isn't a great way, but works for me. Um, you think of it like this. Remember in, in, in like Sunday school when you're a little kid and they had the action songs and you're like doing these things while you're singing, right? This is what God's saying. That your worship should have action attached to it. And it should drive you to be doing something, not just singing songs. And what's interesting about this, the second half he says, don't be what? Don't be... Uh, polluted by the world. Well, you see, the heart of worship is understanding God and looking to Him and trying to understand His desire for us on behalf of others. And so I'm going to meddle here for just a second. So often we just got done doing a worship set. What we should be asking God in those times of worship is, God, are you pleased with my worship? But we get locked in, oh, I hate that song. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have been like, oh, that song again? We're doing Oceans again? Come on. And that's just a red flag for you when you realize these moments where you're distracted and thinking about yourself, you are actually becoming polluted by the world. Because the heart of worship is what God is about and what he's calling us to. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is not only does he care about them, but he values or evaluates how you're treating him based on the way you're treating them, those less fortunate. Look at Matthew 25, it says this, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. So this is pretty interesting because uh, what he's saying here is, you want to know how I think you're treating me? 
How are you treating the least of these? Who are the least of these? These specifically in this passage, he's talking about the people without a voice, the homeless, the the cold and hungry, those who need clothes, those who are sick. He's talking about kids. He's talking about more than kids, but he's talking about kids too. And he's saying, as you treat them, that's how I feel like you're treating me. And then he goes a step further. And he says, so here is the way that you ought to treat others. Right? Here's the example I've said. Uh, you know, John 15 tells us, love each other as he's loved us. But look at Romans chapter 5, verse 18. It says this. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he did what? Adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. And that term Abba Father isn't just like father. It's like like close, intimate dad. The one that you climb up into dad's lap. That's, that's how he's adopted us. And then Psalm 68 kind of puts it a different way. And we could, I could pull out lots of verses about adoption throughout the scripture. I'm not going to do that this morning. But look at, look at Psalm 68. It says it a different way, and I love it. Sing to him. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides in the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. And look at this next part. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He's a father to the fatherless. And don't miss this. You know how he's a father to the fatherless? Because he sets the lonely in families. He's not just this abstract concept of father. He actually sets people in families, meaning God works through us in the orphan world to literally, you know, when I say literally, I mean literally. I don't mean figuratively like we do now. Like literally, God puts kids in families. And that's how he becomes the father of the fatherless. They're inextricably tied together. And so what I want to do, I could spend a lot more time talking about the theology behind it, but I don't want to do that this morning. I do want to, there's the basis. It's important we understand this. But what I want to do this morning is I actually want to look at some of the lives of the less fortunate and understand what does it mean to live in the world of the orphan. At 21 years old, with the exception of one year, I've worked with kids and families, most of which who have been involved with child and family services. So for about 15 years, my career has, not, has been working with children and families, working through dysfunction, abuse, neglect, addiction, crisis. About eight of those years have actually been working for the Division of Child and Family Services. I think anyone that has worked at DCFS or with families involved with DCFS could tell you that sometimes you think you have reached the point where you have seen it all. And then the next case comes through. It reminds you that even in your wildest dreams, you cannot make up these stories you hear or the things you see. Those that have not worked in child welfare will never fully understand the gravity and the weight of the job. It is one of the hardest jobs in the world, and while very few want to do it, everyone seems to think they know how to do it better. I've had children, families, lawyers, judges, law enforcement, therapists, teachers, media, tell me that I'm doing my job incorrectly and criticize decisions made on the case. This has actually been more of a regular experience than not because someone is always unhappy when CPS gets involved with a family. 
People are rarely, if ever, happy to see us, and the decisions we make, life-altering and life-saving decisions, are either considered too invasive government overreach or too lenient negligence and failure to intervene, depending on whose voice is being opinioned. Rarely, if ever, will anyone tell you you made the right decision. The majority of the cases that go well are quietly unnoticed, and those cases won't make the news, and the ones that make the news are largely one-sided because we can't speak directly about our confidential cases. We are required to go into homes that were just raided by armed police officers, go into a home where domestic violence assaults have just occurred, where gangbangers and felons hang out, houses known for drug dealing and weapons, where law enforcement officers refuse to go back without backup. We go into those homes armed with a plastic ID badge, a case file, and our de-escalation social work skills. We go into unsafe places and talk to unsafe people, confronting them with allegations of abuse or neglect. Sometimes we have to remove their children. We interview kids that are scared, kids that know what not to say, kids that have been taught to hate or fear us. We see and hear things that are really the things of nightmares and traumas. And imagine going home from work each night worried about what might happen to those kids left there in those homes where you are certain abuse is happening but have yet to be able to prove it. And although all of us have bachelor's degrees and some of us master's degrees, we are not respected like lawyers or doctors. We're not considered heroic like law enforcement, and we're not even paid as much as teachers. And yet, this is the most meaningful and impactful work I can imagine. Lives can be dramatically changed for the better or even saved by our work. We protect some of the most vulnerable citizens, children. We help give children a voice. Families are strengthened and kids are made safe from the plans we make with them and for them. We connect families to resources they desperately need. We have the opportunity to serve our communities and work to make the lives of others better. And my life personally has been enriched and changed immeasurably by this opportunity. I've had the privilege and absolute honor to work in child welfare for the last 15 years. But today was my last day in the role. It feels like it has truly become part of my identity, part of my purpose, making it hard to move on from it. But regardless of how society views child welfare social workers, those that choose to do this work will always be my heroes. And I have been blessed to work with them, learn from them, and my sincerest and most heartfelt thanks goes out to all those who have and continue to work to protect the children in our communities. So here you have a real letter from a caseworker, um, DCFS, and uh, hearing the struggles that they even deal with. And uh, I wanted to share with you, and uh, I'm gonna invite, uh, just introduce Larry here in just a second, but um, one of the things that we are involved in here at K2 is what's called a care portal. And we're gonna, uh, I'll let her kind of unpack this a little bit. There are, we're the, Utah became the 20th state to utilize the care portal for the needs of, of uh, foster children around the state. And uh, there are 10 churches 
in Utah. Uh, not just K through 10 churches, Larry is actually from The Rock. And so this is Larry Raymer, we welcome her. <laughs> Thanks for being here. And I know that this is something that's near and dear to your heart too, Larry. Um, maybe just, can you help us understand, what is the care portal? What am I talking about here? Okay, so um, Care Portal started in Kansas City, and, or in Kansas, oh, no, sometimes I'm scared, Kansas City, um, and it was a local church that um, just, some, a pastor from a local church just realized the need right in the community, in communities um, for the foster um, families and kids in foster care aging out or um, just to keep a family intact so the children don't go to foster care and so um, what started there just moved across the country in Utah in April was the 20th state to join and Amy King from you guys probably know Amy from here and um, she's our area manager and she gathered um, 10 churches that wanted to be involved and so it's only Salt Lake County right now, but um, what we do is um, there's a point person at each church and um, DCFS, it's just foster care right now, but they'll put a need, um, a caseworker will put a need in the care portal. Um, it could be for a bed, it could, most of the things we're seeing are beds, bedding, um, just to keep maybe a family intact. Like these kids need to have, they each need to have a bed or, you know, it's not going to work here or to support foster families that are fostering um, and so the point person at each church sees the need and then sends it out and um, and then you can meet that practical need you can say oh I have a bed or oh, I have sheets or whatever and then you get to deliver it um, to the family and so far the caseworkers are just so appreciative and blown away that we would want to help them when it's our job, God tells us we need to help so them. To, with specific needs, you can look and say, I've got one of those laying around and I could, I could donate it, which is awesome. So tell me uh, also though, um, tell me a little bit about your experience being involved with this, because I know that a big part of it is, is not just, it's not, you know, it's, it's actual emotionally charging. So let's hear about that. Yeah, so um, I've been a foster caseworker for many years um, here in Utah. And, so foster care has always been in my heart, and even though my husband and I aren't fostering now or we haven't adopted, um, this is there's such a practical way because not all of us are called to do that, but we're still called to help the least of these. And so we met a need. Um, a single mom uh, was had just gotten her kids back um, after they were a year in foster care. His family has been through a lot of loss and a lot of trauma, um, and so the need went out for a bed. Um, their six-year-old son, who's a big boy, um, was sleeping in like a crib, like a toddler bed. So we took the crib or the bed to them and they were so appreciative and we, they had us sit down, they brought us water and, and um, we talked with them for about an hour and they were believers but um, had lost their way and they wanted to come back to the Lord. And so we prayed with them and, and then it just, kind of went from there. They've been coming to church every week, and that's not a requirement at all. Um, you know, y you'll just know how the relationship is going if it's something, but... Um, you're just trying to be needs. This one specifically yeah. ended up in greater relationship yes. is what you're saying, right? Yes, and, and not all of them uh, do. But um, anyways, and so now 
the caseworker has um, asked us to come to court. There's me and another uh, gal who are the point people at The Rock. And we've been to court hearings and we um, have been to team meetings and just have really fallen in love with this family. And, um, and the other really neat thing is once um, you meet the family, you know, we took the bed, but then we realized that um, it was so hot in their apartment and um, I asked if they had air conditioning and they didn't. I mean, it was brutal. And so I contacted the caseworker and um, we were able to get them two units donated by the church and some guys went and put it in, put them in and then we're able to fix the little boy's bike. And so you can see how this just goes and you just become a support um, for them. And so then you were done with them. And I think, do we, do we show stats up here for how we're affecting the foster uh, system? So love, you guys can look at this while we're talking. But tell me, uh, then, then, so you saw them, you delivered a bed, air conditioners, and then you never saw them again, right? Um, no, we're, in fact, they just texted me and said they were praying for me because they knew I was sharing, sorry, sharing today. And they just wanted everybody to know um, how impactful it has been for them. But um, so we, I supervise their visits every Thursday now with their mom. Um, they had a little hiccup where um, she needs supervision again. But um, they gave me these letters, which, um, and I believe these letters aren't to me. It's nothing that I did. It's all God and, and how Jesus brought us into each other's lives, but it's, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, and so if we just obey that, then. So let's hear some of that. What, what do you okay. Let's hear some so of that. This is from the mom. Yeah. Make it easier. Okay, so, Miss Laurie, I'm writing you this letter to tell you how much you mean to me and how much I appreciate you as a whole. Ever since, and this is what is neat, too, is because, you know, these people sometimes aren't seen as people or they're looked down on or they feel judged or and so um ever since i met you and miss becky the first time on the phone through the phone i could feel the love and acceptance and joy for our family thank you so very much for everything we're blessed to have met and become more than portal buddies and this is from the 17 year old who really really has um, had trauma and um, just really hard time. Um, I just wanted to thank you for making me believe I can believe in myself and telling me that I can make it and I will graduate. You're the best and thank you for inviting my family and I to your church. And this is from Miss Amina and she just turned nine and she is the sweetest thing. Um, so she says, Dear Miss Lori, I just want to say thank you for helping us, and you're the best church lady I ever met. She obviously hasn't met very many church ladies. <laughs> I'm like, church lady? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, P.S., will you be my friend? And also, can me and you please read my Bible scriptures together when I see you next time? And then she goes on. But anyways. Relationship has happened, but tell me just real quickly, probably in the next 30 seconds or so, tell me a little bit about what has this done for you? Because it's obvious, great impact, and but, but how about for you? Um, well, obviously, yeah, at least I do feel more blessed than you think you're blessing somebody else just by going through this with them and being in the position to, to help. 
but also it's just been so beautiful to um, see God's work um, in the church, which is all of us um, beyond the walls of each church, just working together, partnering. Um, you know, we've, we've shared needs and coordinated and different churches have taken things. And then to see my own church, um, just my church family just respond and almost like, ah, to meet the need, you know, it's like throwing something to fish and they just, and that, that can be at every church. And it's just, um, just a testimony that if we follow, um, God's command, um, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor and, um, that's, we're living right here with our neighbors. So well, thank you so much for being here. And we guys uh, say thanks again one more time. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Larry. I'd love to hear another story of uh, the foster system. Six schools, five caseworkers, and 11 different parents in four years. Plus, I haven't seen my own biological family in over two years. I've outlasted all of my caseworkers, each one having moved on, while I continue to stay stagnant in the system. I've been moved because of time restraints, personality differences, and for making mistakes that most teenagers do. But unlike most, these parents have the option to put in a notice and have me removed from the home. When I finally found a teacher I could confide in, I had to be moved to the other side of town, never seeing her again. It used to be hard to not make connections or friends, but over time, it's become easier. I've learned that everything is temporary in my world. I'm expected to be grateful for living in a home and not a facility at my age, even though I can't remember the last time someone said they loved me, but I'm considered lucky. Every time I move, I must conform to new rules, lifestyles, religions, everything, without questioning a single thing. Sometimes I wonder what it would like to be to have a mom that would brush my hair and brag to her friends about my grades, or a protective dad that meets my prom date at the door, lecturing him about being a gentleman. But I don't let my mind wander too far, because I don't know that I'll ever get those things although I secretly want them so badly. I'll be considered an adult in less than a year, and even at 17, my deepest desire is to be adopted, and my deepest fear is to age out of the system without a family to call my own. A family who loves me and welcomes me, even when I've messed up. I know fostering teenagers is hard, and it would be easier to just not do it, but being a teenager is hard, and being a teenager in the foster care system is hard, and nobody gave me this choice. He can't understand why she's not around, or why he's here with these strange people in this strange house, and he's too young for it to be explained, but he's not too young to be confused and scared. He doesn't know me, but he's curled up on my lap or holding on to me most of the day, and now, going to sleep, but only if he cannot touch me. On what's probably been the worst day of his short life, I've managed to comfort him some, see him smile a little bit, wipe away tears as he's cried a lot, and I've watched him tentatively put his trust in strangers. He won't be here long, but as long as he is, I will be whatever he needs me to be, 
and I will love him. And when he leaves, I will cry, and I will spend many moments throughout the rest of my life wondering whatever happened to him. To that scared baby, they dropped off at my house at 3 a.m. The one it took hours to put to sleep, and when he did wake up crying until he find my, found my hand, the one it took a day to make smile, and when he did, it made those haunted eyes twinkle. The one, like every other one, will take a piece of my heart when they leave, and for the time they were here, be it days, weeks, months, or years, were loved completely and unconditionally and will always be loved by me. Why do I foster? Because every child deserves a safe place where they are loved. Every child should have someone care for them so much that their heart breaks when they leave. Every child should have someone who will lie on the hard floor and let their fingers go numb just to reach out so they can hold their hand with their tiny little fingers and know that they're not alone. Every child is worth the risk of getting attached to them. And even though most won't remember me, every one of them deserves to be remembered and missed. So now we've come full circle, and I want to introduce you guys to Kelly Mickelson. You're not a stranger to our stage, but um, just hearing that story. Sorry, I'm like crying now. <laughs> um, so my husband and I were foster parents, and um, that's exactly what it's like. And um, when we were foster parents, so let me back up. So I had a friend who was a foster parent, and she just showed up with a baby one day to work. And I was like, did I miss something? Like, um, and so she was telling me about it. And she's like, have you and your husband ever considered it? And I was like, uh, no, definitely not. Um, and she was like, I think you should. I think you should consider this. And. I just held on to it for like three months before even bringing it up to my husband. And at that point I was like, this is not going away. Like God is just not letting me forget about this conversation. And so I took it to Ben and he was like, well, let's, uh, let's think about it then. And we just started taking steps. We we're like, okay, we'll, we'll just take the classes and we'll see how that goes. And we took the classes and we're like, we can't not, we cannot just let this problem exist the way that it does. And the reason that story hits so hard is because you lay on the floor for weeks because they won't sleep and you, you meet them where they're at in that way. Um, and so it's, it's the reality of that is like dead on what it feels like when you're in the midst of it. So, uh, okay, so let me shift gears a little bit. Kelly, you uh, are the point person for what we call our care communities here, right? And so, uh, so you were a foster uh, parent in Kansas, right? Yep. And so how did this lead into you becoming K2's um, point person for foster communities, which is different than the portals? Yes. So one of the things that we realized when we were in Kansas City was we didn't have a lot of support. We had maybe one or two people that kind of popped in every now and then, but we were drowning. We didn't know what we were doing. There were so many moving parts to being foster parents that um, that was something we really missed and that we longed for when we were in that minute or in that time. And when we moved to Utah, 
we found K2 because of their foster care communities, and we were like, that, we need that. And so we walked in the first day and we're like, so who can we talk to that's gonna like do this? <laughs> and um, so that was how we got involved with it. And then through just some situational things, we took it on uh, so that we can help support families in those scenarios. So, so for you, the, tell us a little bit about what, what actually happens in a care community, what's it look like, and, and I mean, is really fostering a kid, is it that much extra work? Yeah. So we were talking about this this week a little bit, and um, yeah, as a foster parent, you have tons of people that come through your home. You have your caseworkers, your CASA workers. They just kind of show up sometimes, whether they call or not. And um, you have court, and you have family visits, and you have team visits, and there's just all these different moving parts. So as a care community, it's about seven to 10 people who volunteer to cover one family. So one family has all these people, and they provide meals throughout the month, or really it just depends on what they bring to it. So maybe you're really good at fixing cars, and it's like, man, my oil just needs to really be changed, and I just don't have time. Hey, I'll pop over, I'll do it for you, no big deal. Um, so once a week, the families get a meal from their team, so that means that everybody takes one meal a month. So it's really not even that big of a thing as your team, you cover people. Um, or maybe it's laundry, or maybe it's mowing the lawn. It just, it really fluctuates depending on what the family needs. Um, and let me tell you, it sounds like it's not a big deal for a meal to show up every week, but our families actually say that that is the biggest thing is knowing that Thursday nights or Tuesday nights, I know someone's gonna show up, drop off a meal, and I can just like hang with my family and I don't even have to worry about it. Anyone, you want to bring a meal to our house once right. a week? And we're not even foster parents, so we'll take it. But so I can see that as truly being really helpful. But you even tell me when you, you had like exorbitant like doctor visits or something like that. Yes, yeah, so we went to the doctor 24 times in two and a half months during that time frame. And my friends were like, "Oh, you're just a new mom." And I was like, "I really don't think I'm being a new mom about this." And I asked our doctor, and he was like, "You've had to come in every single time you've come in." So, so this, so this, the role, and and how many people are in the community? How many do we have? Like. So we have have two and we're looking to start two more so we are looking for 14 to 20 people to start two new or two new groups um, we have a family who needs a group and we don't have the people for them right now and so we would love to be able to give them just that support that they need for their kiddos and one of the things I love about care communities is that it doesn't, this fits definitely that group of people who you're like, I don't feel like I'm called to foster. And it's like, right, but we're called to support and love and be part of this anyway. And this is like taking your skills and saying, God, this is what I have and this is how I can love these little people in the way that you love them. Any other parting shots, closing statements before you go? Okay. Um, next week we're actually having a um, like a meeting to just give you kind of more of the details. This is like super broad. This isn't really tell you a lot about what actually happens and what's actually needed. So next week after the service, we're going to have an um, informational meeting, um, and then in two weeks we'll have a training for anybody who signs up. So we're. Yeah, so we're ready to go. We have family awesome. to meet you. Awesome. Well, you guys thank Kelly for being here with us this morning. You got it. Thanks. So as we close out this morning, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the band 
to come up, and we're going to do a closing song here. But I just want to make you aware of a few things. Like Kelly just said, Larry and Kelly both are going to be out in the lobby. They'd love to answer any questions you have, figure uh, maybe you just want to support them even, or figure out how you can take a next step. And here's the reality of this issue, is that God has called the church to be the solution to this problem. It's very clear. And so for each and every one of you, as I said at the beginning, I want you to ask yourself, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do? And we have, we're going to show you uh, of those 200 kids that are available for adoption, you're going to get a chance to see each of their faces in this next song. Because the truth of the matter is we do not know what the future holds for anyone. But we do know that God wants restoration. He wants to use us to be part of the healing process in the lives of of the less fortunate. And so, as you're leaving after this, remember, stop at the info booth if you want, and you can grab a picture. We're asking you guys to take, you may have gotten one in your program, or if you didn't, just stop at the info booth. There are pictures of these kids, and we're asking you to do one simple thing. Pray for them every day. Every single one of you here can do that. And so, as we sing this next song, just again, I just ask you to prayerfully let the song wash over you and ask God, what are you wanting me to do?